Well, let's go to the Lord in prayer as we begin our time of study in God's Word. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning thanking you for the blessings of this day. Thank you for the time that we've already enjoyed in worship. Lord, as we study from your Word today, Lord, I pray that uh, your Word would change us, that we would learn through your Word to order our lives under the authority of Christ and under the authorities that you've given us, and that we would seek to live in a way that is self-controlled and obedient to you, and that in doing so, we would adorn the gospel of Christ. We would, we would testify in our actions to the beauty of the gospel. Lord, I pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. So this morning, we're going to be in Titus chapter 2. We're actually going to look at the whole uh, of Ch- Titus chapter 2 as we take a shift in our study in uh, discipleship. And if you remember, since the beginning of the year, we've been working through defining what it is to be a disciple. And we started out by defining that exact thing, what it means to be a disciple. And we looked at the Greek word mathetes, which is the word we translate into disciple. And then we move to how we are to disciple one another and how we are to be disciples. And that is by following the patterns or examples that we've been given by God. And so we looked at the pattern of Old Testament Israel. We looked at the pattern of the apostles in the New Testament. We looked at the saints, the pattern of the saints. So people who have gone before us that uh, give us godly examples that we can follow. And then we've looked at the pattern of faithful leaders, pastors and deacons who, who establish uh, a way that we are to live, an example for us to follow as disciples of Jesus Christ. And so now we want to take another shift in uh, studying what it is to be a disciple to look at uh, another question that might arise, and that is what are the beliefs and the practices that a disciple is to hold to? Or put another way, what is the way of life that a disciple is to practice? And I'm going to answer that question over the next three weeks by looking at another Greek word that deals with discipleship, and that is the word didache. And it's spelled, if you are taking notes, notes, the word didache is spelled D-I-D-A-C-H. And the the word didache is translated in our Bibles, in the English language, is translated into either into doctrine or into teaching. So uh, you find this word throughout the New Testament used to refer to the doctrine of the church or the teaching of the church. And we have it right here in the passage that we're going to read today. In fact, if you notice in verse 1, it says, But as for you, teach... What accords with sound doctrine. That word doctrine there is didache, or it's a form of the word didache. But when I say the word doctrine or teaching, I have to admit that I, as a pastor, and you maybe as you're listening to that, there might be a little bit of a handicap to our understanding of what exactly the New Testament means when it talks about doctrine or teaching. Because I, I kind of grew up to understand doctrine more in the terms of precepts or or um, propositions that we hold to, right? So when I talk about doctrine, usually my mind goes to things like the Baptist faith and message 
or the Westminster Confession of Faith or uh, the Apostles Creed or a number of other things that we say are doctrine. So the way we tend to think of doctrine, particularly in the American church, as as propositions or precepts that we hold to, you know, as Baptists, we believe in these things and we stand for them and we hold to them and we expect our pastor or our deacons to hold to these things. And yes, doctrine does, when we talk about what the New Testament means by the word didache or doctrine, it does mean that. It does mean the, te- the teachings, the precepts that we hold to. But it means more than that. The, the, when we talk about doctrine from a New Testament perspective, we're not just talking about the principles belie- we believe or the, the principles we hold to, but we also mean the, the way that we live. So doctrine, as it is concerned in the New Testament, is not just an issue of what we believe, but also how that belief plays out in the way that we live. And so what I'd rather concern, the way I'd rather interpret this word didache is as a way of life. Christianity, after all, is a way of life. It is the way of life. As Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the what? The way, the truth, and the life. And so Christianity is the right way. It is the God-honoring way. This the God-honoring way of thinking. It's the God-honoring way of believing. And it is the God-honoring way of living. And so this morning, we begin to understand this way of life by considering the way of obedience. So to see this, let's read together Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 15. Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, Paul says this, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and, to tra- and, and so train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled, Show yourself, to, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. So that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our father for the grace uh, our savior i'm sorry for the grace of god has appeared bringing salvation for all people training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions 
and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. So from this passage, I want you to understand that the way of life that we find as a disciple of Jesus Christ, the way of life is found in obedience that is both sound and self-controlled. So we'll look at those two points today, that obedience of the, the doctrine of God is both sound and self-controlled. So first, we follow a way of obedience that is sound. So in verse 1, Paul encourages Titus, as the pastor of the church at Crete, to teach what accords with sound doctrine. In that statement, we have that form of the Greek word, didache, which is translated as doctrine. And Titus is instructed to teach the congregation that is under him in a way that is sound. Now, the word sound there means healthy or wholesome. It is literally the word hygiene is in the Greek. So the word means to be healthy or wholesome in the way that you teach. So this sound doctrine is in contrast to false teachers that have come into the church of Crete and they have begun to cause all sorts of problems. So if you notice back up in verse 16 of verse 1 of, of chapter 1, Paul says they profess, speaking of false teachers, they profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. So Paul is drawing a contrast between the teaching of false teachers who are misleading people in the church of Crete and the way that Titus is to teach. And the contrast is most notably found in the way that they behave. In contrast to the false teachers who do evil works, Titus is to teach that the people of Crete are to do good works. Now notice, catch this, when Paul refers to the false teachers in chapter 1 verse 16, you notice that he says they profess the work of God. They profess the truths of God, but their works are far from God. They say all the right things. They seem to have a sincere profession of faith. They know their Bible, chapter and verse. They, are, uh, they can argue the fine points of the law and of philosophy, but they, their confession is contradicted by their works. What they say they believe is not reflected in their obedience to Christ. Their way of life is not sound, it's not healthy, it's not wholesome. No, instead, it is detestable. Now, I want you to understand this and let this sink in because, uh, I, I, honestly, this is a, a major change in my own understanding of doctrine. Because we have this, like I said earlier, we have this bad habit of dividing out belief 
and practice. That you can have right belief, but maybe mess up on your practice of faith. Or you can have, uh, you can believe all the right things, but you know, you, you don't really live a holy life, but you still believe in Jesus, so that's, that's fine and good, and, and you're, you're holding to orthodoxy and truth because you have the right doctrine. But notice that there is no separation for Paul between right belief and right action. Right belief always is followed by right action. And if there is no right action, if instead there are evil works, then that means that whatever you believe is canceled out by the works that you hold. You can be, you can have in your head the right beliefs. You can hold to the right doctrines, but not really believe it all because you do not have right works. That there is a reflection from one to the other. That right doctrine leads to right belief, uh, right actions, and right actions should be a reflection of right beliefs. So, uh, the, the, Paul says that you can know a false teacher because his works betray his false teaching. His works are detestable and therefore his teaching is detestable. So by contrast, Titus is to lead his church in a way that is healthy. So what does a sound way of obedience look like? Well, based on verses 2 through 10... A sound way of obedience looks like a life that is rightly ordered. A life that is ordered under the authority of Christ, that is ordered under the authority of sound teaching, that is ordered under a submissive heart and a heart that seeks to glorify God by serving others. So you'll notice that Paul gives, he, he, he tells Titus that he needs to address Five different groups in these verses that we have. And he gives each one of these groups a way of ordering their lives in the doctrine of God. So in verse 2, he tells Titus to be sure to teach older men to be disciplined examples to everyone else. So older men are to show in their way of life that they are uh, under control of their desire, that they have their desires under control, and that they are to live in a healthy way of faith and love and commitment. And next, in verse 3, Titus is to teach older women to do two things. First, they are to live in a way that is reverent, that their behavior is to be reverent. And that, that is reflected in the fact that they aren't gossips and they aren't drunkards. Now, I don't know why he particularly chooses older women for those two things. I'm not going to meddle here. But, but, but they aren't to be gossips and they aren't to be drunks. We'll just leave it at that. Uh, and the other thing that they are to do is that they are to teach the next generation of women. So I think it's interesting that Paul doesn't instruct Titus to do this. He doesn't say, Titus, I want you to teach younger women to be self-controlled and be, uh, to love their children and their husband and all that stuff. And there's a good reason for that. And it goes back to what we were talking about in the last few sermons that I've, I've been through. And that is that 
Remember I said that in the Christian walk, we have examples set before us, right? We have examples of godly leaders. We have examples of saints that have gone before us. And those people that have gone before us, those people that are older and wiser than we are, are to serve as examples to us of how to live the Christian life. Well, now, as a pastor, as a male pastor, I can teach general principles of how women are to live in faith and in, in, in faithfulness to their Lord. But what I can't do is set an example for you in how to do that. You need older women who are able to set that example, who have been there and done that and lived faithfully and, and uh, lived for 68 years in marriage and faithfulness to their husbands and lived as examples of, of, of a godly Christian woman in, in front of you and set that pattern for you. So uh, Paul says that older women are to do that. And as we talked about in Sunday school this morning, uh, that we need to have a culture in our church and in every church that where older women, older men are willing to give advice, to lead in wisdom, and not just in teaching Sunday school, not just in leading VBS, although those things are good and important, but also in just coming alongside of the younger generation and leading them in godly wisdom. In saying, hey, I understand what you're going through. I know it can be hard. To raise children. I know it can be hard to stay faithful to your spouse. I know it can be hard to, to run and go and do everything that you're expected to do as a husband and as a father or as a wife and as a mother. I know that those things are hard. And let me tell you what we did. And let me tell you, there's brighter days ahead. There are easier things coming. There's a good thing coming out of this that you will find that when you're done with all of the raising of your children that you miss it and you want to, to have more time with them and you wish that you had more time with them and all of that. We, we need godly men and women who have gone through that to teach and to lead because the younger generation does not have that wisdom at their fingertips. You know what they have instead? They have artificial intelligence. So just the other night, I was talking to a teenager who was bragging about her Snapchat AI. And she was saying that she would much rather talk to a robot, literally, in her Snapchat than talk to other uh, adult, uh, other people because the AI always gave her the right answer. And, and, and it actually gave it in good English and could actually speak well and, and, uh, and give her a, a quick feedback to whatever question that she was a, a answering. Now, it's fascinating that technology has gotten to the point that you can, can't distinguish between a human and a robot. But what's sad in that very, state, the very, very same statement is the fact that uh, our children, our youth, are turning to computers rather than turning to older men and women who have been through the situations they are in and are able to give them godly advice and leadership in their lives. And we need to be accessible, just as accessible as a Snapchat robot to our children and to our grandchildren and to the youth of this church and the youth of this world so that we are ready to give them the, the, the good advice that they cannot get anywhere else. 
So that leads to the third group. Older, we've talked about older men and older women. Now Paul turns to younger women. And older women are to teach younger women to love their children and respect their husbands and to live in self-control. And similarly, he moves on to younger men and they are to live with self-control as well. And then the last group that Titus is to teach is found in verse 9. He tells uh, Titus to teach slaves to be submissive and to be diligent in their work, to be honest and good workers for their masters. Now, you'll notice I didn't pick apart every last word of those five groups and go into detail on every last thing that Paul instructs Titus to teach. And the reason I didn't do that is because I believe there's a bigger point that I want to bring out about all of these groups and what Paul is teaching here. As we've worked through each of those groups, you'll notice that each is instructed to rightly order their lives. Each is instructed to be submissive or to be self-controlled in some way. So you'll notice Titus is commanded to submit to sound doctrine. Older men and women are to submit to the teachings of their pastor. Younger men and women are to submit to the examples of their elders. Slaves are to submit to their masters. You see, each person, regardless of their station in life, is under some sphere of authority that helps to order their obedience. So Paul says that in submitting to authority, particularly in slaves, notice the last, uh, last part of verse 10. He says, So that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So this is particular to slaves, but I think this principle applies to all five of these groups that by being self-controlled and being submissive and being under authority and being obedient, Paul says that we adorn the doctrine of God. So this is a fascinating statement to me, and I had to drill down into this when I was preparing this sermon. It's fascinating because the Greek word for adorn is cosmio, which is where we get our word cosmetic, right? So what Paul is saying here is it, the word literally means to decorate or to garnish. So what he's literally saying here is that our obedience, our submission, our faithfulness in, uh, under the authority of another is like a decoration that is added to the, to the gospel. Our rightly ordered way of living beautifies the gospel, particularly by proving it to be effective. If, and as I've said before, if we believe that we are forgiven by God and that we are, by the blood of Jesus, our sins have been washed away and that we now have a right standing before God, but we are unforgiving ourselves, then our disobedience, our lack of rightly ordering our lives as a consequence of what we understand about the gospel will take away from the effectiveness of the gospel in the lives of other people. When we go to witness to someone 
And our lives are just a wreck because we have not followed the law of God and we have not lived in a way that is pure and we have not sought to be obedient to God. If we effect, if we anticipate and expect that our witness is to be effective, we can't expect that if our lives are not ordered by the doctrine of God, by the law of God. And so we beautify the gospel. We adorn the gospel by a well-ordered life under the authority of Christ and under the authorities that God has placed over us. We adorn or beautify the gospel by our obedience. And so the way the second point that I want you to see from this is that the way of obedience is not just sound, but it is also self-controlled. So in verses 11 through 15, Paul reminds Titus of the effect that the gospel should have in the life of the believer. In verse 11, he says that the grace of God has brought salvation to everyone. And that grace has real uh, visible effect on those who believe it, which we find in verse 12. So the, the salvation of God teaches us to give up our old ways. He says it, it, the grace of God led us to give up our ungodliness and our sinful passions. And instead of living by our sinful passions and our sinful desires, we instead live by self-control. Now you've probably noticed as we've worked through this passage that, that Paul says the word self-control a lot. He makes a big deal out of this concept of self-control. In fact, he says it four different times in this passage. And really, every other command that he gives to older women or to older men or to younger women, younger men and to slaves, really all of the others really could be defined as self-control. So when he says that older women should, uh, should be, have reverent behavior, that's self-control. When he says that uh, you older men should be sober-minded, that's self-control. And when he says that uh, uh, younger men, uh, older, uh, I'm sorry, uh, younger women and slaves should be submissive, it's all summed up as self-control. The way of the disciple of Christ is to deny our passions, to put, to put ourselves under the authority of Christ, and to consider the needs of others before ourselves. So brothers and sisters, we are called to be disciples and to walk in a way that orders our lives under the authority of Christ and under the authorities that He has placed over us. This runs counter to our American way of thinking. We are taught that we have rights and privileges as Americans, and we're even taught to defend those regardless or, or no, ma- no matter what. But as believers, we are under authority. We should live in obedience to authority, whether that be to the authority of the church or to the authority of our spouses or to the authority of our employer, whatever it might be. The world tells us that our sexual impulses and preferences are the greatest good that we can pursue. But in Christ, we are to deny those so that we might live in holiness. 
The world tells us that we're to live for ourselves and that devoting as much time to ourselves and to, quote, self-care is really the goal of life. But in Christ, we are called to think about the good of others, whether that be the young, young people that we can teach and influence or our families and employers to whom we are called to serve. May we leave this place and walk in a way that brings beauty to the gospel of Christ as we live in self-control. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of your doctrine. And Lord, that it is not just precepts and propositions that we're to follow, but it is also a way of life. It is a way of obedience. And Father, I pray that we would rightly order our lives, that we would walk in a way that beautifies the gospel, that witnesses to the effect of the gospel in the life of the believer. And Father, I pray that we would leave this place ready to live in self-control and faithfulness to you. I pray all these things in Christ's name.